Hey, I'm Adam. And I'm Brian. Of Everyone Has a Podcast, and you're listening to Pop Goes Your World. I'm Chris McBrien, and the pop culture from Generation X is everything to me. And I'm Derek Myers, and I'm here to educate Chris on the great pop culture of today's generation. Episode 145, Pleasantville Movie Review. Chris McBrien, along with Derek Myers, and this is Pop Goes Your World, the pop culture podcast for the generations. If you'd like to join our community around here, you can reach out to us on Twitter at Amaron underscore DM. That's Derek and at C McBrien is me. And you'll find us on Facebook. Our page is Pop Goes Your World and Pop Goes Your is our website. Uh, I should also mention before we get started, um, the podcast awards nomination process is still open right now. If you get a chance, if you enjoy the show, head over to podcastawards.com and you can nominate Pop Goes Your World in the entertainment category. That would be great. We'd appreciate it. And also nominate all your other favorite podcasts in all the other categories. Derek, how are you this week, my friend? Chris, I am doing quite well. Thank you. Good. I've uh, I've been on vacation for a while and uh, we spent some to time go- together. I had to – well, not, I had to go back to work this week. Not that we're back in the office, mm-hmm. but I had to start working again this week. And so it's been uh, – you, know, you get pretty used to not working <laughs> like as you would on any vacation. Of but um, seeing as how we couldn't really go anywhere on vacation, mm-hmm. it was uh, it was interesting to get back to it this week. And uh, what do you know? Next week I'm off again. So nice. and, and like I say, we got a chance to spend some time together. Indeed, we did. You were able great. to uh, find some time in your very busy schedule once your children were visiting their grandparents to come and spend the night with uh, my wife and I. You and your wife came on down. We had a great time. Well, I mean, I had a great time. We uh, great we had playing some, games. We had some some played some games, swam in the pool, had some good food, had some yeah. good drinks. It was it was just good to see everybody in person again. No, yeah, it was awesome. It was great. Thanks for having us down. We'll have to do it again sometime for sure. Um, anything new in the world of pop culture for you in your your well, time off? Yeah, well, a couple of things. Uh, so I mentioned on a previous show that when I was on vacation, I wanted something to binge watch. And I couldn't really think of it. Mm-hmm. So I decided to go back and watch all of the Marvel MCU movies. Yes, you mentioned uh, that. Yeah, so I'm still working my way through. I was trying to watch one a day, but mm-hmm. you know, there were just some days where I either didn't feel like it or you know, maybe I fell asleep a little early because I had had a few beverages. But uh, anyway, I'm working my way through. And over the last two days, the two movies I, I watched were Thor Ragnarok, which is the third Thor movie, and Black Panther. And I know my wife wanted to watch both of those with me, although she hasn't been watching most of because she's seen all the early ones. But she said, when you get to sort of these last five or six movies, I want to watch them with you. So the two of us watched those two movies over the last couple of days. And we talked about them after. And I said, you know, with it, when a franchise pumps out this many movies, because there's over 20 movies in the Marvel Cinematic Universe now, you would expect the quality to potentially dip a little bit. You know, people get a little lazy and complacent. And you're like, well, it's a third movie in a particular series. We'll let it slide for a while. But we were surprised that given how far in like these are i think like the 17th and 18th movies and and it's the third thor movie like these are two of the very best ones that have come out the thor ragnarok and black panther like they were both fantastic movies in their own right but given that they're a part of this ongoing series it was uh, it was a very pleasant reminder to to see how good they were again to enjoy them especially because we hadn't seen either of them since the theater, even though we had bought the Blu-rays, both Blu-rays when we watched them this week were still in the plastic. We had to open it up. So it was uh, it was pretty nice to uh, to be able to experience those movies again and to just be reminded of how good, how high quality movies they are. So I know you're not really into the MCU, Chris, but no. uh, Black Panther absolutely stands. I've heard Black time. Panther is like fantastic. It is fantastic. Like people have been saying, well, you know, now you're watching them all. Well, how would you rank them? What are your top three or four or five MCUs? And I'm like – I got to think Thor Ragnarok and Black Panther are both in the top five, uh, like hands down. And uh, like I was saying, Black is there, Panther is, is there a very clear much cut, a Is there a clear movie. cut number one? Sorry, what's that? Is there a clear cut number one for you? Uh, I don't know. Well, I've still got about six movies to go. So I want to sort of reserve judgment on a number one until I've actually seen them all again in such a short time frame. But uh, I got to think that those two are both contenders. Hmm. So any case. Yeah. Um, 
What's new with you in the world of pop culture, my friend? Okay, uh, so Disney Plus. Um, you subscribe to a lot of streaming services. Do you subscribe to Disney Plus? Uh, no, I don't have children, so I don't need Disney Plus. Yeah, see, I do. I think it's even without the kids. I think it's fantastic. I really like it. But as you know, I I have my kids watch a lot of nostalgia with me. It's a thing I do. So anyway, back in back in the day, uh, if we wanted to watch cartoons back in my day, uh, we had a chance to watch them once a week, Saturday mornings. So on Saturday mornings, cartoons would run between eight a.m. and noon. And there was no Teletoon or Cartoon Network or Netflix or any of that stuff. So if you wanted cartoons, you sat in front of the TV on Saturday mornings. And anyway, between the cartoons and the commercials for like the sugary cereals and stuff, they used to run these short interstitial animated uh, short things called Schoolhouse Rock. You're familiar with them, I'm sure. Uh, yeah, I have the DVD collection of all the Schoolhouse Rocks. They're nice. great. Nice. Well, they've added them to Disney+. Plus. Nice. So. You know, um, now I was, I used to watch myself personally. I used to watch Saturday morning cartoons from about 77 to 1980. So I've seen all the Schoolhouse Rock episodes when they ran back then. But anyway, so I had my kids watch them with me now that they're on Disney Plus. And guess what? Kids in 2020 like these things too. Oh yeah, they're quite good. They're, it, they're really good. What's your favorite one, Chris? Oh boy, there's a couple. Um... Some of the songs are so catchy. Um, the ones that stand out, that stood out to me when I went back and watched them with my kids. Yeah. Uh, there's a noun is a person, yep. place, or a thing. That's that was the favorite. very first one. And it was yep. really good. Uh, but also probably the most famous one is conjunction, junction, conjunction, what's your function? But I think yep. my personal favorite is the one where Noah's Ark is counting all the animals by twos. And it's like 17 twice is 34. It's elementary. 18 twice is 36. It's elementary. That one, I don't know. There's something about it I love, but they're all just so, so, so good. And the other one that really stood out to me when I was going through them that I remembered was um, was Lolly. Lolly, 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 get your adverbs here. Oh, yeah, so, right. Oh, just so catchy and stuff, but they're just also good. So, uh, so on, on the DVD, there mm -hmm. are a number of making of featurettes where they interview the writers, the song composers, the producers, the artists. And I don't know if those are available on Disney plus, but I found those made my enjoyment of the little shorts even better. Once I uh, had a chance to listen to the creators talk about how these things came together and uh, the kind of things they were trying to accomplish and some of the hidden uh, hidden gems that came out of it. So I would take another look on your menu and see if there's any of those featurettes there and the, the behind the scenes stuff. I think as a grown up, you would get a kick out of that stuff. I'll take, I'll take a look because on Disney Plus, they have a, a thing where there's related and then there's extras. And I know with Star Wars, uh, the original trilogy, all the ones that I watch of Star Wars, of course, um, on the extras, it's got like some deleted scenes and things like that. So it might, it might be in there. We'll have to take a look. Take a look. Take a look. The big thing for me is that I, once again, I've successfully gotten my kids to watch and like something from Gen X, you know, that's now, my, but that is, that's educational programming. Though. So I think that that checks multiple boxes. I'm not denying the awesomeness that your kids are watching this Gen X stuff, but in all fairness, educational programming that's high quality sort of stands the test of time. Like even, I think if you show them episodes of Sesame street, well, they're probably a little old for that now, but you know what I mean? Like if you watched episodes, if you show today's young kids who are watching new episodes of Sesame street episodes from the seventies and eighties, they would probably like them just as much because the content is so timeless and the messaging is in very much still relevant. So mm -hmm. anyway, yeah. And it's, you know, it, it is kind of my personal mission in life to get my kids to watch Gen X stuff, but it's also my personal mission in life to be the corny dad. So here's your dad joke of the week. Derek, another thing that is a big Gen X thing that I've got my kids to watch is Bugs Bunny. So I wanted to give you a corny joke related to Looney Tunes. Okay. Okay. Fire away. All right. Why didn't Elmer Fudd hold up the liquor store? Oh, man. Um, I have no idea. Please he, tell me why. He said it was way too whiskey. Oh, oh my God. the Big Mac and we have the Big Mick. He helped yeah. Gilligan get off the island. Oh, yeah, that guy. That guy. Joe Lewis was 76 years old. Well, I know you used to work at the Chuck E. Cheese, right? What is that? Real velvet? Just like your soul, baby. 
Oh, that boy is good. That boy can sing. That could work. Sexual chocolate. Oh, I've heard those lines before. (laughs) Ah, what do you know from funny? Uh, Okay, so um, Pleasantville. Uh, This movie came out after 1989. So, you know, I'd never seen it. Uh, So, Derek, uh, maybe you can start us off. You can just maybe... I think I'd like to get a bit of an idea of why you felt it was important for me to see this movie. Um, we're going to do a deep dive on the movie in a bit, as we always do. So maybe just give me an idea of why you picked this movie for this week. Okay, so um, I'll start off with sort of a very, very general and broad synopsis. And like you said, we'll do a deep dive and explore it. But at its heart, the premise of the movie is that um, there is or there that there was, quote unquote, was a... Um, television show very much like leave it to beaver something uh, that takes place in like the 50s and it was called pleasantville and that's the show within the show of this movie and so although the movie takes place in 1998 the year it was shot um most of the movie uh takes place within this show that's from the 50s so the the premise is that at the beginning you've got a brother and sister who are twins they're in uh, high school and one's nerdy and one's popular and uh, the nerdy one wants to watch the pleasantville marathon that's going to be on tv that night and there's a chance to win a prize if you know all the trivia and they establish that he knows everything about every episode he is the the most uh knowledgeable pleasantville fan there ever was and within the first 10 minutes of the of the show stuff happens and they the brother and sister end up transported into the Pleasantville show and they become the characters in the show that, that are um, the brother and sister in the show. And so again, it's like, imagine leave it to beaver. If uh, you know, two brothers were fighting and suddenly they're uh, um, uh, beaver and what's the brother's name? Wally. Wally. Leave it to beaver. So they're Wally and beaver. And then suddenly, yeah. So that, that's what it is. Thank you. And then so you have the brother and sister played by Toby Maguire and Reese Witherspoon are in Pleasantville. And it's this black and white TV show that takes these episodes take place in 1958. They establish that by showing calendars a few times. And it's very much an idealistic look at the world through, uh, you know, the lens of 1958. And it's, it's this, you know, small little suburban town and they have the milkman delivering the milk and it's, it's, uh, you know, it's it's what you think of when they're like, oh, the good old days in middle America. And then through the course of the movie, things start to change because you have these two characters that have 1998 sensibilities who are in this 1958 show. And while the brother wants to try and follow the scripts as he remembers them and not change anything because, you know, it's perfect the way it is, the sister who is rebellious by nature starts to question a lot of what's going on and, you know, like – you have a 1998 sensibility and you're thrust into a 1958 world, you're you're asking a lot of questions and you're challenging a lot of what's considered the norm because you now have 30 additional years of experience. You know, it's things like the, the, the wives stay home and cook the dinners no matter what. They do exactly what the husbands tell them to. Uh, everything's run by the men in um, – you know, like the, the the basketball team is is perfect. They never miss a shot. They've never lost a game. It's everything is just supposed to be perfect. And then as the the kids start to interact, and they start to spread the the knowledge of of what could be, and they the characters within the show now start to have similar questions, like, well, what's outside of Pleasantville, and 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 uh, you know, uh, various things. And what happens is through the course of the movie, as innocence is lost and experience is gained and emotions are experienced in a way different than they would normally have been portrayed on this show, the black and white becomes colorized. So um, early in the show, sort of the first example of it is the, uh, the the girl from 1998. She goes on a first date with the captain of the basketball team, which in 1958 would have been like holding hands and having a malt. And she takes them to make a point and has sex with them. And then suddenly – as the kids start talking about sex and start having sexual experiences, all the, all the teenagers start turning into colors. And of course, now there's this, this, um, dynamic of black and white versus color. Now, although all the characters depicted in Pleasantville are white, um, like Caucasian white, it really starts to, uh, identify the ideas of racism and the, um, the the this you know um, talking about like what is considered normal and acceptable versus what is going to be challenged and why do you challenge something and what's the best way to do that and then how do people react when things start to change people who are in power of course 
don't want change. They like being at the top of the food chain. But everybody else suddenly has questions. Well, why does it have to be this way? And through the course of the movie, as more things start to change, more things start to become in color. And the things that refuse to change remain black and white. And it's a little on the nose in some cases. Um, you know, you start seeing signs and windows that specifically say no colors. And of course, what they mean in the context of this movie is who are not black and white and who are now shown in technicolor. But it rings a pretty hard truth of this is how things were. And it's it's an interesting way of of sort of portraying some of these ideas. And um, and ultimately, like it talks about, like, how do you implement change? And I guess that wasn't a very brief synopsis at all. But um, it came out in 1998. We're 21 years, 22 years since then. I wasn't sure how well it would hold up or if the message would be sort of washed down given how much time's passed. But I've seen the movie a few times over the last few years, but not in its entirety. I sat down this week and I watched it start to finish. And I was really pleased in my mind that I thought it really held up well and that the message in this movie about questioning the norms and and fighting for what's right and and trying to implement change where it's needed were very much as relevant, even more relevant today uh, than they may have been in 1998. So that was primarily why I thought, Chris, I wanted you to watch it. Not okay. to mention that it has a huge cast and there are great performances. But anyway, I'm going to turn okay. it over to you for that a makes sense. Yeah. Tell me about it. What did you think? Yeah, that's what I was curious about. Not so much the synopsis, but why you wanted me to watch this movie. I have a question for you. How long sure. have we been doing this show together, Caveman? Mm, three, four years. That long have we you've been doing it? At that's least three. Yeah. That, that's a bit of time. This was probably the single best movie you have ever given me to watch on this podcast. All right. Yeah, I'm glad so glad you liked it. It is brilliant. I I and I think the reason why it's so brilliant is it caught me by surprise. Because the way it starts out, you think it's just gonna be some silly comedy and then with with the way they set it up and and they think oh this is going to be like a second rate back to the future and dawn knots is in i'm like yeah this is just going to be a light fluffy little movie but it's not it is a social commentary it's oh, yeah. relevant it's emotional it's absolutely brilliant i loved it i'm so loved glad it. i finally loved got a winner it. all right Movie came out in 1998, like you said, but it's it's about the 50s, but it's more relevant today than ever. The message of this film is absolutely resounding. It's current. I feel like this movie was ahead of its time in 1998. Oh, it, absolutely. it is more of an important film in 2020 than it was in 1998. So let's get into this movie, shall we? Absolutely. All right. So like you mentioned, so the movie opens up and someone's flipping through the TV channels and they stop on this old fictional show from the 50s, like you said, called Pleasantville. And there's this trivia contest coming up and the winner of the trivia contest I love gets to go to Pleasant, the, the Pleasantville of their choice because they're all over America. It reminded me of Springfield. Springfield. From The yeah. Simpsons, you know, because every state seems to have a Springfield and maybe a Pleasantville. And there's um, a wink wink to that later in the yeah, movie. Yeah, yeah. And so... The, 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 and, and the, really, because the concept is that this town represents the typical American small town of the 50s. Absolutely. And and that's what the 50s, you know, that's what TV shows back then was all about. Like, like you mentioned, Leave it to Beaver. It was about Ward, you know, working, coming home to June. His dinner was made. He reads the paper. The kids play outside. Right. So they're in, in the yard with the white picket. Exactly. Tent. So so Toby McGuire is. You know, in 1998, when the movie opens up, obviously, and he's talking to the prettiest girl in school and he's asking her out and the camera pulls back and you realize she's really far away from him and he just doesn't have the, the guts to actually approach her and ask her out for real. So it totally sets his character up as, as the nerd that doesn't fit in. He's He is basically the perfect candidate to be transformed into another time and another world, right? Yeah. And then I also liked the, there's the teacher in class. It's like warning the students. If they don't do well in class, their lives are basically over, right? Which yeah, is it's a, like a montage of all the things that are going wrong in the world and all the yes. despair they have to look forward to. And it's just like every single class, no matter the subject, was something bad, something bad, something bad. And like even at one point, then the teacher sort of goes, does anyone tell me what famine is? It's like – 
as if these kids are just so numb to it now, they're not even paying attention anymore. Such a typical message that I think children receive in the modern school system. So very relevant. Um, so anyway, so there's going to be a Pleasantville marathon on TV, followed by the trivia contest. And like you said, Toby McGuire knows everything there is to know about the show. He's watched every single rerun because it's his escape. Right. From being yeah. a nerd. Right. Well, so, and they show him like re- he's watching an episode and he's reciting the yeah. lines. It's clear that he knows the freaking dialogue yeah, every yeah. single episode. Right. Which so is you, something a nerd would do. Right. You don't have any real friends. What do you get? You become friends with TV. You start to watch and rewatch your favorite shows. It's perfect. It sets it up as the kid who's shy, who's not good with people, who's not popular, who lacks confidence. It, it just sets it up so perfectly. Well, you just know he's going to win the trivia contest. And then Reese Witherspoon is his sister, obviously, and and she invites this popular boy over to the house to watch a concert on TV. So, of course, they start fighting over what they're going to watch, and the remote goes flying across the room, and it it just smashes. And then the doorbell rings, and it's Don Knotts. And he's a television repairman, which jumps out right away because... By 1998, there was no such thing as TV repairmen, right? Yeah. You know, after the 70s, TVs just became cheaper and cheaper. You never got them repaired. Like if it broke, you just bought a new one, right? So Don Knotts is obviously part of the 50s. Like this makes sense right away. And he offers them this remote that says it'll put you right into the show. And so, of course, at this point, I'm thinking this is just going to be this corny cheesy movie about going back in time and how society is so different back then and we did that that was called hot tub time machine exactly and, and it also how, had a cameo from a star from a diff, different time and look which how crappy is what made me was. think of this one so yeah. i was i'm glad you sort of thought it was going to go in that direction and then it I, surprised you when it didn't well i did because i mean you, you you're thinking this is your typical hollywood fish out of water story right so i'm totally skeptical at this point, watching this movie, and I'm thinking, oh, oh, Derek, what are you doing to me? And then, of course, they push the remote and they're transported into the TV. And now they're characters in the TV show Pleasantville because they play Bud and Mary Sue. Oh, but by the way, because all girls in the 50s, by the way, had two names. As they make fun of in this movie. Yeah. Yeah. Well, because even then- in the movie, there's like Betty Jean and Lisa Ann and Peggy Jane. Right. So. Yeah. But no. uh, so so obviously Reese doesn't want to be there. And no. I thought it was interesting because although Toby McGuire loves the show and, you know, he just you'd think he'd want to be there. He says he wants to go home right away. And so yeah. that's where the movie kind of started to get me, you know, because I'm figuring like, well, he should just want to be there. Like, you know, he definitely won't want to just stay there. Right. And you know, he's a nerd back home. But his first instinct is that he, he wants to go back. So, that well, that's interesting. So anyway, so you go through all of the typical juxtapositioning of the, the two different cultures, right? So Joan Allen serves them breakfast, and there's like all this food. Oh. By 1998 standards, like tons of food, like the, all the meat and everything. And there's a milk delivery guy, like you mentioned. And Reese also, she's got the curls and the pointy bra. And the teacher has all the apples on the desk, which is another, you know, huge difference. Because now I went to to school to grade school in the 70s and early 80s and we never gave the teacher an apple it, it feels like a, like a 50s american thing or something that but anyway um like you mentioned uh toby mcguire he's on the basketball team and no matter what he does the ball always goes in he tries bouncing it off the windows and the rafters nothing but net you know and so my wife recognized the guy that played skip he was yeah. paul walker yeah. From Fast and Furious. I, I've never yeah. seen the Fast and Furious. So I don't know. And my wife is like, oh, he's so hot. And I'm like, oh, God, here we go again. <laughs> Every movie you make yeah. me watch. This was like his first big movie. He, I think he had another movie before this, but it was a small part and it wasn't a big success. This was sort of like his first big Hollywood. Not that he was an above the line name on the poster by any means. He only has a few scenes. But once he started to become Paul Walker of Fast and the Furious, people were like, what else has he been in? Well, you know, he's in this movie Pleasantville. It's like, oh, OK. I feel like pretty much all the movies that you nominate for me to watch on here, my my wife ends up uh, watching and thinking that there's hot guys in it. I don't know. Um, <laughs> K-Ben, please start recommending movies with more ugly guys in them. OK, thank you. I really appreciate that. <laughs> but anyway, so Paul Walker tells uh, Toby McGuire that he wants to ask out his sister. And then Toby basically alludes to the fact that, well, she might not want to go out with you. You know, well, no, first he says, oh, are we already at that episode? Like, right. He's now r- sort of going through the motions in his mind going, oh, we're playing through the script that he's familiar with. And 
in a way, I think that almost gives him a little bit of comfort. He's like, okay, now I've got a framework to work with. And then when he talks to the sister and she's like, no, I don't want to do that. And he realizes like they can really change the way things are going to play out. Because he misses his shot right after he yeah. tells him that you're right. You know, and then, and nobody's ever missed a, a shot in basketball. So Toby, obviously uh, he realizes that they have to do everything the exact same as they happen in the episodes or else just like in back to the future, they can alter the reality. Yeah. You know, like the butterfly effect kind of thing. Yeah. Now, so, hang on a sec. When he yep. misses the basketball shot, mm-hmm. the, uh, and then the ball just rolls over and the coach says to all the players, nobody touch it. Yeah, nobody touch it. Everyone step steps away. back. Yeah. Like, it's, like it's radioactive because they've yeah. never seen a ball that didn't go in before. And, and then we start to see, you know, all the people that are in there, they're, they, they basically live according to the episodes. Right. And, and yeah. their, and their lives are all predetermined for yes. them. So they have no free will. They but they also have no past because when they start talking about certain things, there are obviously gaps in their knowledge because they're not real. They're fictional characters, but like a lot of things later in the movie, when they start to talk about them, you're, you sort of, well, at least for me, I'm thinking like, well, shouldn't this person sort of already have a basic understanding of some of these ideas? So it, I think it really just reinforces that these are very two dimensional characters that were just created for this show. And then, you know, by having quote real people in the world, they can start to make these two dimensional characters, three dimensional. And when they sort of hit that three dimensional point, they go from black and white to color. Well, that's the key is that that these people can't think for themselves. Right. Right. Like, like when, when Toby's late for his job at the mall shop and, and Jeff Daniels doesn't know what to do. Yeah, you know, like he, he's he, literally worn down the counter with yeah, his rag. because he's just sitting there wiping the counter and he's taking all the paint off it because he's like, well, you know, Toby usually does one thing and then Jeff Daniels does something else. And without Toby McGuire there, Jeff Daniels doesn't know what to do next, right? So they, they don't know anything outside the boundaries of the town either. Like if you remember the teacher is doing a geography lesson, it's about Main Street and Elm Street. There's no world beyond the boundaries of the town. Right. And, and it was at this point that I, I knew this movie is going to be a little bit different than what I expected. And funny enough, it's also at the point when my wife turns to me and she goes, this movie's dumb. I'm going to bed. <laughs> and I'm like, what? And it's too bad because this for me is where the movie turned from being that fluffy time travel kind of predictable thing into yep. a really meaningful examination of the human spirit. And, yep. and it, for me, it's where things started to get really, really good. So my wife missed out. But um, Reese, like you mentioned, when she was back in the, in the 90s, she was this sexually liberated young woman. But that's not acceptable in the 50s. Yeah. So like when she makes that first allusion toward sex to Paul Walker, he's like confused. It's like completely lost on him. And then yeah. she asks him, well, take me up to Lover's Lane. And and the thing is, the girls in the 50s do not initiate physical contact, right? But what it does is it sparks an awakening in all of the other teenagers. And this part of the movie could have been done really poorly. And I think it's one of the most important sequences in the film, because if they had played it just slightly differently, if the director would have just done it a bit differently, it just could have come off as cheesy or even exploitative. It just wouldn't have worked. The rest of the film wouldn't have worked either, but it works. Mm-hmm. And then when um, when Toby goes to uh, Jeff Daniels and, um, and, 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 and he, he realizes that Jeff Daniels is starting to think for himself because he closes up the store for the first time. Yeah. And then, like you mentioned, Reese does it with Paul Walker, much to his chagrin, by the way. Yeah. And then and then on the drive home, he sees the red rose and he yeah, tells that, the other that's guys, the first, that's, the, that's first, the first thing of color, right? Yeah, that's, that, that's the first, the first glimpse time. that you get of that. Like, oh, what's going to happen here? And then he tells the other guys on the basketball team about what happened. And then they yeah. all start missing their shot. <laughs> <laughs> and then you see a shot back at the lake and there's all these teens are like doing it in the cars. And there's like red taillight on one car. I think a girl's tongue is pink. There's a bubble gum that's pink. There's a car that's green. You know, yeah. and then the juke jukebox is in color. Oh, and by the way, I wanted to mention that the jukebox that they show, I'm yep. positive it's the one from Happy Days. It absolutely is. I read oh, that in the trivia. It's the exact yeah. same model. So cool. So I think it's- I'm glad you picked up on that. Yeah, I think it's interesting when the mom and Reese have a conversation yeah. and, and the mom says to her, well, what goes on up, up at Lover's Lane? And she says, sex. And the mom says, what's sex? And so Reese explains it to her. You don't hear her explain, but she, you know, she kind of whispers it to her. And the, the first thing the mother says is, well, your father would never do that. Yeah. <laughs> and and yeah. so, so Reese explains that there's other ways to do it, you know, implying masturbation. Yeah. 
and you see the mom in the bathtub and she wakes up the dad and everything and the tree catches fire outside and then the firemen come and they don't know how to put out the fire because they only take kittens out of trees, of course, right? Just innocent stuff. No one, nobody ever gets hurt. Nothing ever catches fire in their perfect world, right? right. And, 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 and so again, here, here's where I was worried that the movie might slip into a bit of schlockiness because it could have, because it's, it's, it's played for laughs, but it doesn't. You know, it doesn't slip into that. And the thing that I thought was interesting is, is you at this point, you get the impression that sex is the catalyst for change for these people. But it's not. No, you have Reese Witherspoon's character who even says that. She goes, yeah. How come I'm still in black and white. I've had more sex than any of these other girls. Right. And they sort of go, well, I don't know. And then it's not until much later when different, you know, she she has a different experience, uh, totally non-sexual that that changes her from black and white into color. And the scene where, where Jeff Daniels comes over to the house and him and jo- Joan Allen look at each other and there's something totally going on between them. And here is where the movie just hits it on the head because this is where you realize it's not about sex. That's not the catalyst for Jeff Daniels and the mom. They're just kindred spirits. Yeah. Right. They both want to achieve a free will and, and a sense yeah. of living life and just experiencing emotions and art and love and compassion. This movie is really, really, really good, man. Well, and and to build on what you just said, like after the mom sees Jeff Daniels and then she, uh, you know, has her time in the bathtub, the like the next scene with her is playing bridge with the women. And it's like, what does she see in red? The hearts. Her hand is all hearts because in Pleasantville, of course, you get every heart dealt to you when you're playing bridge. Um, but I, I thought it was interesting that of all the suits they gave her, it was the heart. And it was like the whole idea that it's awakened these emotions in her. And it's this not necessarily a, a, a capital L love for Jeff Daniels character, but this desire to to do something different. Um, so, again, there, there's a lot of uh, a lot of correlation between, uh, you know, the various symbols and colors that appear after characters do certain things, say certain things, have certain interactions. It's, it's not just randomly, let's make something in this scene, a color. It's, it's a very deliberate choice in most of the scenes to say like, this was this color for this. I mean, they don't actually tell you why, but if you watch enough movies as, as you and I do, you can pick up on a lot of the symbolism and and things of that nature. It's, it's very clever. It's very well done. Mm. Oh, just as an aside, I recognize the mayor too, right away. He was the guy from a few good men. Remember, he's the guy that gets into his uniform and then shoots himself. J.P. Uh, Walsh, really, really yeah. good actor. He was in Good Morning yeah, Vietnam really as well, I think. But anyway, um, so I thought it was interesting that the people don't have books. All the pages are blank. And well, then, I like when they when they when he asked her that, she goes, Did you know all the books are blank? And he's she's like, he's like, How do you know that? She goes, Well, when I was in the library, he immediately what were you doing in the library? And she even says, I was looking for the bathroom. I got lost. <laughs> right. <laughs> and, a little dig at her right at the beginning there. But yeah. And then it's cool. As soon as he starts to mention what happens in the books. The words appear. Yeah. And then that's when you realize it's literature and it's art that liberate people, not sex. Yeah. You know, and and that's where I I feel that this film is more important today than ever. With all this make America great again, horseshit, it's it's all about going back to a time when white people lived in communities that were homogenous and everyone was the same and everyone had the same values. And the thing is, fascism takes root when these types of values are challenged. You know, when when people start to realize that there's there's more to the world than their daily homogenous existence, the social order is threatened. Right. And and people in power who here in the movie are represented by the mayor. Right. They'll do whatever. Chamber of Commerce. Yes. The chamber. They'll do whatever they can to stop change. They're going to do whatever they can to suppress free will because they want to be able to exert control over people. But at at the end of the day, the majority of people want free will. Right. They want to experience different things. They want to feel emotions and and different art and different music and different culture. And so this movie to me is all about the human spirit. That's why I loved this movie so much. Yeah. Yeah. Even there's uh, an interesting scene after the diner gets smashed, um, which, of course, had me immediately thinking of the scene at the end of do the right thing yep. where they, they I thought the same in. thing. Yep. Yeah. There, there's a lot of like film homages in this that. Uh, are either intentional or in, unintentional, but are certainly there. And then, so after that scene, all the kids come back to the diner and they start to clean it up. And this is after the 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 mayor and the chamber of commerce has had like a town meeting where they're basically like, we got to put a stop to all this, and they issue all the rules. You can't do this, and you can't do mm-hmm. that, and you can't go to Lovers Lane, you can't go to the library, and, and you can't listen to certain kinds of music. And um, 
I believe it's that scene during that scene or um, maybe even no, I'm pretty sure it's that scene. There's like um, uh, jazz music playing in the background as a part of the score. Mm-hmm. And I can't remember the name of the piece. Um, uh, I'll look it up here before uh, before we're done. But it's it's like I'm not a big jazz fan, but this is a very well-known piece that is used in a lot of stuff. And apparently it's done in five, four time where most like rock and roll is four, four time. And so I was reading some notes on the movie and they said like, this was a very deliberate choice to use this kind of music in this scene because it really represents the, the break from the norm of they're, they're literally talking about the kinds of music you can and can't listen to. And what they're saying, what the people in power are saying is it must be this traditional standard format You've got this jazz music going that is like this total against the norm style format. So you have what the characters are actually saying juxtaposed from what the score is playing in your brain. So your mind is processing the words and the music simultaneously where you have the order that's being demanded in the words, but the free form artistic expression that's being like played out in the in the music it's it's just it's so clever so many things are done deliberately but subtly and it works so well and probably for me the best scene of the film is when joan allen turns to color and she doesn't know what to do she knows she she can't face her husband right mm-hmm. so toby mcguire helps her apply the gray makeup to make her look like she's black and white again and this scene again from a director or directorial point of view it could have come off so much differently, I think, in the hands of a lesser director and especially lesser actors. But it just plays out as a really emotional scene of, of loving and caring and compassion. There, yeah. There's some really talented actors at work here. Now, the director is Gary Ross. He hasn't directed a whole lot. Um, he directed this, obviously, and Hunger Games and Seabiscuit. But he did write big. And yeah, that's and a, Dave. Co-creator yeah, of Big right. and Dave says right on the cover of the box here. And and for me, Big is is a great example of a movie that it could have come off as schlocky and sophomoric, but it's just all about emotions and choices and maturing as a human being. A lot of the same themes that we see in this movie in Pleasantville. Um, so I think and even that, in the Hunger Games to to yeah. presented differently, but again, similar kind of idea. I, again, I did some homework for this podcast uh, a little more than I usually do, just because I really enjoyed this movie. And yeah, a lot of the, the a lot of the reviews, is, like more recent reviews, have been making these parallels, the same ones you made between Big and Pleasantville, but they're also including Hunger Games in that sort of uh, exploration of of expressing ideas. Well, for sure, because I think Gary Ross has um, he's got a really good grasp on the material. Right. And he's obviously able to get outstanding performances from his leads. When Jeff Daniels sees art for the first time, <laughs> when Toby Maguire gives him the art book and he's looking through and he sees Monet and Van Gogh and Picasso and Cezanne, just this awakening that he has, he, ha- he feels he has this sense of purpose and, and, and expression is in him. Again, these performers, just, like they've got some serious acting chops here, man. Yeah. Um, so I think it's interesting. Toby then get back to his story, he finally gets up the nerve to ask the girl out. And she says yes. And then Don Knotts shows up. And well, first she offers him the cookies, right? I made yes. these cookies. And he's like, no, no, no these aren't for me. For Whitey. And she's right. like, no, I made them for you. Because again, he's still and in some levels trying to stick to the, the scripts that he knows. But like you said, eventually he asks her out anyway. Yeah, the Don Knotts calls him on it. Those are Whitey's cookies, by the yeah. way. And, and Toby doesn't want to go home. Now, all of a sudden, he's like, oh, I don't want to go. And Don Knotts is bad with them because they're messing up Pleasantville, right? By instilling life into the people there. And this it's interesting because Reese is like, why are we still in black and white? And that, and again, you realize it's not just the sex because she's like she said, you know, she's had more of it than any of them. But Toby goes out on the date. And then I thought it was interesting because the metaphor of the girl offering him the apple off the tree a little on the nose but yeah yeah but it it works and then paul walker comes over to the house and asks reese out and she says no she's studying yeah because she's starting to change and it's when she changes that's when she turns color right and and i also goes from wanting to be the most popular person to just wanting to better herself exactly it's, it's it's a real change in the character the mix of color and black and white in this movie is really 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 cool really really well done a very good tool for telling the story i think yes yeah 
you know, and, and it allows you to see how things are unfolding, you know. Um, I, I then obviously the scene when William H. Macy comes home and in his typical <laughs> 50s fashion, honey, I'm home. Where's my dinner? And he realizes his wife isn't there. And his world just starts to unravel. Right. And, and he goes to the other men at the bowling alley. And the- well, hang on. Before he does that, he comes in, he says, where's my dinner? Realizes she's not there. And then there's thunder and lightning and right. it starts raining, which it's never done in Pleasantville. It's before. never rained before. And it's timed perfectly that as all of these changes are happening simultaneously, they cut from scene to scene to scene. You hear the thunder in the background. And then when it actually starts raining, the people freak out because they've never experienced rain. And again, Toby Maguire being the implement of change has to explain to the kids at lover's lane. Like it's just rain. Don't worry about it. And he, and know, he, he walks, to show yeah, he walks out and rain. opens his arms. Yeah. Yeah. So, so good. Um, but it's interesting when William H. Macy confronts the other, the other men and they, they're all like, we have to, we have to put a stop to this because heaven forbid they, they too might miss their dinner. You know, yeah, and, and the mayor is saying this is about values, you know, and again, it's just a totally a metaphor for retaining power and white privilege. It's just something they do not want to give up, you know. And so, interestingly, Jeff Daniels is in color, the mom's in color, Toby's date is in color, Toby's still in black and white, right? Yeah. And hang on, let me stop you for a second. Mm-hmm. Let's go back to that scene in the bowling alley where he's saying we got to implement change and stuff. Yes. The director has said that he deliberately set up that scene with uh, the mayor standing in front of the bowling scores. Right. Is shot is a from below. Homage. Shot from below. Yep. Yeah. Is a direct homage to the opening of Patton ah, where yeah. he's giving the big scene in front of yep. the flag. He said he goes, that was a deliberate choice to do it that way. And if you pause the movie and you look at the scores, like three guys are in the eighth frame of their bowling and are bowling perfect games. And like the scores are ridiculous. It's every bit as much as the basketball team was perfect. Clearly when it comes to bowling in Pleasantville, everybody bowls well. So again, it's, you have this important scene with a serious message that's presented like a military speech. And then in the background, the, the, the directors decided to give you this little wink, wink, uh, bit of humor to, to sort of offset it. So in any it, case, yeah, it's interesting when um, William H. Wacy sees his wife in color and, and, and he's like, it'll go away. And she's like, I don't want it to go away. And then the movie, it, then it starts. Then, then the movie takes a little bit of a, of a turn here mm-hmm. because the guys in the car, they say to, to Toby McGuire, oh, I see you're busy with your colored girlfriend. Yeah. And the mayor says, uh, we got to separate out the things that are pleasant from the things that are unpleasant. And like you mentioned, there's a sign on a store window that says no coloreds allowed. Yeah. And and the group of kids picking on the mom because she's in color. Yeah. And like it just, oh, the whole thing just hits home. And then Toby gets involved and punches the guy and the blood's red. Right. And then right. it's such a great scene, him and the mom hug. And then when Jeff Daniels does the nude painting of Joan Allen on the restaurant windows. And that's when, like you mentioned, the crowd forms, they smash the windows. It's just like, do the right thing. Yeah. It reminds but again, me it's a that. crowd of people who are not in color. It's all black and white. Yep. So again, it's, it's a group of people representing the old way of doing things that are, are fearful of this change. They see this window with these colors and they don't, either don't want it to change or don't understand why it's changing. And their reaction is violence. Let's, and it's a mo- it's literal mob mentality. They start patting each other on the back for destroying the window and throwing things like literally the guy throws a brick and then like three people pat him on the back. Like, good job. Good job. But interesting, and, but interestingly, yeah. like the movie keeps surprising me though, because mm-hmm. then the mayor acknowledges that violence isn't the answer. Yeah. He's yeah, like, no, I, we need a code of conduct. Yeah. You know, they basically want to make America pleasant again, you know, and and again, the movie just resonates today so much more than it did 20 years ago. So that they ban all music, but Johnny Mathis and they, and the interesting, they want and the star spangled banner. That's of, of course. And they want all the school curriculum to emphasize continuity over alteration. Yeah. You know, and, and Toby is the one that resists this, right. And he's the one that leads the initiative to, to try to promote change. And to promote art and literature. And yeah. then him and Jeff Daniels paint that mural on the side of the building. And it, it features nudes and music albums. And it's got books like Moby Dick and Huck Finn and Catcher, Catcher in the Rye. In the Rye. Oh, it's yeah. so good. And, and it's even got the apple with the worm, quote, worm, quote, snake right. uh, in it. There's a lot of 
a lot of very um, on the nose symbolism uh, it throughout the movie, but especially in that actually in the um, the DVD version I have, there's a foldout of the mural on the inset of the DVD, like sort of to emphasize like, hey, if you're going to watch this movie, this is something you might actually want to take a few minutes and look at after you've seen it. So and the dad says, what happened? And Toby says, people change. Mm-hmm. And the dad asks, can they change back? And Toby says, I don't think so. It's 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 harder. <laughs> you know, it's just it's, yeah. it's an interesting dialogue they have. And then there's the trial of Toby and Jeff Daniels, and they, they can't defend themselves. They can't have a lawyer. The system is totally rigged against them. Right. Yeah. It, it, it's 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 designed to resist change and prop up the, the kind of the fleeting power of the old guard. Right. But, but the right. thing is. Just like in real life, no matter how hard you try, no matter how much you try and suppress the wheels of change, inevitably change comes anyway. Because as Tobey Maguire says, you can't stop it because it's inside of you. Right. And the whole town turns color, including the mayor. Yeah. And of course, that whole scene in the court is, again, very much an homage to um, to Kill a Mockingbird. It is. And again, that's the first thing the, I thought of. The, yep. the people in black and white at the bottom and the people who are the, quote, colored people in the top. Again, it's very, very much that parallel. And again, it's a deliberate choice by the director to to really send home. Like, by this point, we're almost two hours in. Like, the movie runs about two hours. Like, we're pretty close to the end at this point. It's like, if you've been watching this long and you still don't get the point of what he's doing, like, he's really hitting you over the head with some of this very on-the-nose symbolism mm-hmm. and these these familiar things so that you're really starting to get the message here. I love, I love that there was no, like, jury. It wasn't a jury. It was nope. the four members of the Chamber of Commerce. Right. Yeah. And I, I love it when everybody turns color for the first time in the whole movie, Joan Allen smiles. Yeah. You know, and then, and I love how Reese Witherspoon decides she wants to stay there. She's like, no, she, she got an offer to go to school. She's, she's, mm-hmm. so she's totally changed. And then Toby decides that like, he wants to go back to the nineties and see his mom. And so he goes back and, 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 and his mom is still upset over their, this divorce that's going on. And I thought it was really, really important. He says to her, listen, mom, there's no right car. There's no right house and there's no right life. You know, and she's she's like, yeah. how do you get so smart? Ah, well, I had a pretty good day. Had a good day. You know, yeah. <laughs> and, and, and then the message is that, like, in other words, diversity is good. People, yeah. people can and should be different. It makes the world a better place. Like your Absolutely. way, your way isn't the right way. My way isn't the right way. Everyone's way is the right way. You should just live your life and be happy because that's all that matters. You know, yep. and then the final scene when William H. Macy and Joan Allen are on the park bench and he says to her, what's going to happen now? And she goes, I don't know. And then it pans over and Jeff Daniels is sitting there and he goes, I don't know either. Yeah. Like it's just, it's just a great film. Yeah. Great film. And I'm so yeah. glad that you, you had me watch this. Unlike well, a lot of I, the other stuff that I don't enjoy this movie. I absolutely love the, the, the message of it, the, the, the motif of the film, the way it was done, the style. Oh, great movie, man. So let me ask you this. So yes. your wife obviously didn't finish watching it. No, she are, left early. You, she left like 15 minutes in. Are you going to push for her to, to watch it? Did you enjoy it enough that I did? Would, so, yeah. so what I did was I actually explained it to her um, the next morning about what you said. This is what you missed. And I explained it. She's like, oh, my God, that sounds fantastic. I'm like, well, well okay, this good. is what you missed. <laughs> so now do you think that this is something I think your kids are probably still a little young, but do you think this is something that you would show your kids? And if so, like, how old do you think they would be before you um, feel comfortable walking them through this? It's, there, there are still a lot of adult themes in it, yeah. especially with the sexuality and stuff. So I would probably, yeah. I maybe want to wait until they're teenagers, but it's, it's okay. an important film for them to watch. So, yeah, yeah, no, I, I like this. And I think I mentioned at the end of the last episode, when I recommended this, I actually saw this movie when it premiered at the Toronto International Film Festival in 98, uh, the gala premiere, and they had a whole bunch of the cast and crew there. They did this big Q and a, but again, the, the, you know, you watch the movie and you're sort of still in awe of what you've seen and you're, you know, it's, it's reeling around in your head. So you don't necessarily like, I don't really remember any of the questions that were asked. And honestly, at these film festivals, the questions are almost always the same and the answers are pretty boring, but it, uh, it, for that, that was part of the reason for me that it sort of hit me so hard the first time when I saw it, because I was in this like lavish setting. But then when it came out on video and I watched it again and I was working at the video store and it did very well on video and you would recommend it to people and they'd be like, Oh, okay. And I mean, the fact that it had 
big names in it didn't hurt. People are always more willing to watch a movie that has performers they recognize. But uh, yeah, it's it's one of these ones that they show on cable a fair fair amount, and uh, I think with good reason. So I, I'm really glad you. I'm glad we had a chance to watch it, and I'm really glad you liked yeah, it. Yeah, I mean, it slipped under the radar when it came out in 1998. It only finished 51st at the box office. You know, just just above how Stella got her groove back, and right before uh, I still know what you did last summer. Yeah, I, what surprises me looking back on this and re- doing a little homework is the fact that so much special effects work was required with black and white and color being in many of the same scenes together and how in some scenes they were shot in color and then they added black and white and other scenes were shot in black and white and they added color after and how they were saying like in some of the scenes, like the scene where Joan Allen um, goes to see Jeff Daniels and she's basically covered in makeup and she starts to cry when she sees the the paintings for the first time and like just the the idea of this expressionist art and it's like the beauty of it she starts to weep and when he wipes it wipes the tear away the color comes see the back. color yeah. skin underneath and apparently so that was a scene where um they they needed to have her face covered in makeup and it was her real color underneath that was revealed. And so apparently they used green because it's like green screen technology as opposed to gray. So in that scene in real life, when she performed it, she was covered head to toe in green makeup. Well, not wow. head to toe, but any parts you could see. Right. But in the finished product, she comes in and it's like these tones and shades of gray. So it's it's just interesting to think of how much work went into the special effects. Oh, sure. And then, you, and then it didn't even get a nomination for best special effects. It got a, a three Oscar nominations, none of which were for special effects, which was – you know, in my mind, a little bit disappointing, uh, you know, like any of the Oscars, you know, often we'll look back and sort of go, oh, my God, that was a terrible choice. Um, so this the year this one came out, the best picture nominees were Shakespeare in Love, which ended up winning Elizabeth. Yeah. Life is Beautiful, Saving Private Ryan and the Thin Red Line. So you had three movies about World War Two and two movies about Queen Elizabeth. So mm-hmm. uh, I mean, it was up, it was up for costume design, which you would expect. I mean, being a, yeah. a period piece, right? Yeah. Yeah. Visual effects here that year. It was uh, Armageddon. Okay, that had a lot of Michael Bay, a lot of uh, uh, explosions and such. But Mighty Joe Young, which had a computer-generated ape, but that's about it. And then What Dreams May Come with Robin Williams, which, again, had a lot of special effects. Mm-hmm. But, you know, it's more sort of, ooh, here's a painting that's like a watercolor painting that's the background. Like it wasn't – like this kind of thing to me seems like it would have been more difficult. And And looking back now – who the hell knows what dreams may come in Mighty Joe Young? I guarantee yeah. you, you ask 10 people on the street, none of them have seen those movies. So. I mean, it was nominated for um, dramatic score, you know, but that's Randy Newman. Yeah. I mean, the, the, the Academy obviously loves him. Yeah. But uh, yeah, no, you make some good points on that. Um, would you give it a rating out of 10 for me, please? Uh, probably an eight or eight and a half. Like, I really like this movie and I, I would definitely recommend it. And I would be happy to watch it again. I would give it an eight and a half or a nine. Nice, you know, good. It was, it was, I'm it glad. Was, it was fantastic. I really liked uh, some of the motifs that were in this film. I thought it was, thought it was really good. Good. I'm, gl- I'm really glad you liked it. All right. Well, on that note, let's have some fun with Caveman. Okay. So Pleasantville obviously used color and black and white to achieve the vision of the film, right? But it's it, it's not the only movie to blend both of those elements into a, into a movie. So I'll tell you what we're going to do. I'm going to give you the year and the synopsis of a movie, and all you have to do is name the movie. But the the common thread here is that every single movie in tonight's trivia has both color and black and white in it. uh, Okay, I can only think of one off the top of my head, but uh, let's see how many of these I I can actually get. I think you're going to do a little bit better than you think. Okay, okay. All right, are you ready? Okay. I'm ready. Start with the obvious one, 1939. Yeah, that's the one. A young girl is swept away from a farm to a magical land in a tornado and embarks on a quest with her new friends to help her return home. Yeah, that's The Wizard of Oz. That's the one that I was thinking of. Yes, there you go. Black and white and color in one movie. Okay, yep. ni- 1999. A little bit more in your wheel. Oh, okay. Yeah, I'm right, in my, right in my sweet spot. Three film students vanish after traveling into a Maryland forest to film a documentary, leaving only their footage behind. Oh, yeah. Uh, Blair Witch Project. Yes. Oh, I they, forgot that. Yeah, that's right. Okay. 2000. Again, right in your wheelhouse. A man with short-term memory loss attempts to track down his wife's murderer. Well, we just did this one on the podcast. That's Memento. 
It is Memento. You are correct. See, I told you you'd do better in this. Yeah, okay. You, you're you're killing this one. Throw right. me some throw me some fastballs. Stop no. throwing them right over the stop throwing them right over the plate. Give me some curveballs. Ah, here's jumps. another easy one. 1993. In German occupied Poland during World War II, an industrialist gradually becomes concerned for his Jewish workforce after witnessing their persecution by the Nazis. Well, I want to say it's Schindler's List. Is it Schindler's List? You are correct. Really? Yes. There's just the one color part in it, though, right? There's there's still color in it, though. Yeah, he sees her in the dress, right? Okay, 1980. This film depicts the life of a real-life boxer whose violence and temper that led him to the top in the ring destroyed his life outside of it. Yeah, that's right. Raging Bull. Yes, you are correct. See, I told you you're killing it. 2005, right in your wheelhouse, okay? A movie that explores the dark and miserable town Basin City tells the story of three different people all caught up in violent corruption. Wow. I have no idea. Sin City. Oh, geez. Wait, there was no. Oh, yeah, there was color in Sin City. See, now, if you had said based on the Frank Miller comic. Well, I'm not going to give it to you that. Okay. Okay. All right. 1952. Going back. A silent film production company and cast make a difficult transition to sound. Oh, was this um, a kiss? It was uh, singing in the rain. Yeah, yeah I love singing in the rain. It's my oh, favorite love, musical of all time. Too. It's so good. Moses supposes his toeses yep. are roses. Oh, so yep. good. Okay, 2003. After awakening from a four-year coma, a former assassin wreaks vengeance on the team of assassins who betrayed her. Uh, I don't, I'm good. Total guess on this one. Is it Kill Bill Volume 1? It is. Come on. Oh, wow. Yes. I, when the date threw me off, I thought it was much more recent than that. All right, I'll try a couple of maybe tougher ones on here. 1983, yeah. quote unquote, documentary about a man who can look and act like whoever he's around and meets various famous people throughout history. Uh, well, I was going to say this is Final Tap, but sorry, can you read the question again for me, please? Yeah, it's a documentary. About a man who can look and act like whoever he's around and meets various famous people throughout history. This sounds so familiar. Okay, it's not Spinal Tap. Uh, you know what? I Wow, this sounds familiar. Okay, I don't know. I got to give up. Zelig. Okay, I have no... That's Zellig not what I was thinking. by Woody Allen. Oh, it's so good. It's from... Oh, it's so good. You have to watch it. Okay, 1998. Again, more in your wheelhouse. Okay. A former neo-Nazi skinhead tries to prevent his younger oh. brother from going down the same wrong path that he did. Yeah, I love this movie. Uh, American History X. Yeah. Edward Norton was so jacked in that movie. Holy yeah. cow. All right, two more. One's easy, one maybe not. 1994. Two victims of traumatized childhoods become lovers and psychopathic serial murderers irresponsibly glorified by the mass media. Um, was that, um, Woody Harrelson, um, uh, natural born killers. It was correct. Okay, good. Yes. You know, I never, I started watching that. I got about an hour into it and I just, I couldn't get through it. I didn't like it. I hated it. Yeah. Okay. 1985. Last one. Okay. 1985 in New Jersey in 1935, a movie character walks off the screen and into the real world. Wow. Uh, I'll give you a hint. Like Pleasantville. This one also featured Jeff Daniels. Okay, wow. Sorry, can you read me the question one more time then, In New Jersey in 1935, Mm -hmm. a movie character walks off the screen and into the real world. Wow. I I don't know. That doesn't sound familiar at all. I got to pass. It's the Purple Rose of Cairo. Another Woody Allen film. Sure, if you say so. Oh, man, it was good. You have to go back and watch it. Um, okay, so that's it. You did pretty good. You know, you were a little bit worried. You only got like yeah. three wrong, so you got seventy. You got seventy percent. The easy ones were really easy, but yeah. the tough ones were were pretty tough. There, it didn't seem to be a lot of middle ground in that no. one. It was either super easy or super hard. Well, I mean, there's not a ton of movies that have both black and white and color in them, so I had to get as that's creative true. as I could. Um, okay, so next week um, we've got a little bit of a surprise. We're not going to say what it is. 
But next week we have a surprise. So you got to make sure that you come back and see us next week because it should be pretty pretty fun. You know what you know what the surprise is, Derek. So I'm not going to get into it. I know what the surprise is, and I, I will say it's mm-hmm. not a movie review. We're doing no. a spe- very a very special on on a very special episode of Pop Goes Your World. Yes, we'll have something for you next week. Our top five will be awesome. That's yep. all we can say. I should also mention, like I like I mentioned at the top of the show, if you can go to podcastawards.com, you know, it only takes a minute out of your day. You can nominate uh, Pop Culture World in the entertainment category. And if you'd like to reach us to, to us on Twitter, at Amaron underscore DM, that's Derek, and at C. McBrien, that's me. We're also on Facebook. We've got a page there, Pop Culture World and popcultureworld.com. If you'd like to uh, reach out to us uh, via our website and our email, that's all there. Until next week, this is Chris McBrien for Derek Myers saying thanks for listening to Pop Goes Your World, the pop culture podcast for the generations. Thanks for listening to Pop Goes Your World. You can contact Chris and Derek at popgoesyourworld.com. Please take a minute and review the podcast on iTunes or wherever you download and listen to the show. 